Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Thank you guys so much for joining me here today. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday on all podcast platforms, as well as upload the video version onto YouTube every Wednesday as well, and you are not going to want to miss it. As you guys saw last week, we published the new Killer Instinct cover art, and in the spirit of keeping things new, exciting, and fresh, we also now have new, exciting, and fresh merch. So we have a brand new line of merch that is going to be dropping on Wednesday, November 8th, which is actually the same day that you guys are hearing this episode. So if you're listening to this episode on the day that we have released it, then the merch is now live. So you can go and look at that. I'm going to have it linked on the Killer Instinct Instagram page as well as below in the description box as well. So you guys are going to be able to go check that out. We have sweatshirts, we have mugs and cups and all different types of stuff. And I'm so excited for you guys to see it. So make sure you head over to the Instagram for Killer Instinct or check out the link below so you can see see what we have over there. And yeah, I'm very, very excited about that. I feel like it's been a little over a year since we've done a new line of merch. So in the spirit of keeping things new, I thought that this would be the perfect time to do it. And we are right around the corner for the holidays as well. So I figured it just made sense and I'm so excited. I love it so much. And I think you guys really will too. Now, with that all being said, you guys, today's case is a big one. I would classify this case and truthfully always have classified this case as one of the bigger cases in true crime. It is an extremely well-known case in true crime. There are so many layers to this case. There are so many twists, so many turns, and honestly, it can be somewhat confusing, and I'm going to do my very best to explain it all today. But luckily, I am extremely happy to be able to say that this case, which is almost a 20-year-old case, has officially been solved within the past two weeks. As you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the case of Natalie Holloway. So let's jump right on into it. Natalie Holloway was born on October 21st, 1986 in Clinton, Mississippi to her parents, Dave and Beth Holloway. Growing up, Natalie was the firstborn out of her and her brother, Matthew. Dave was an insurance agent for State Farm in Meridian, Mississippi. And in 1993, Dave and Beth got a divorce and both went on to marry new partners. Dave married a woman named Robin and Beth married a man named George Twitty, who was an Alabama businessman. So Beth and the kids packed up their things and moved to Mountain Brook, Alabama, to start this new chapter of their lives. Now, ever since Natalie was about seven years old, Beth had primary custody of her kids, so she was primarily raised by her mom. However, her and her dad, Dave, still maintained a good relationship. 
Now, Beth and George remained married for six years before they ultimately ended up getting a divorce as well. However, Beth and the kids decided to stay in Mountain Brook, Alabama. They had already spent a good portion of their growing up years there, and Beth thought that it would be best for the kids to stay in Mountain Brook. They had their friends, they had their school, and they were really loving their life there. Mountain Brook, Alabama is well known to be a very affluent town, and at the time of Natalie's disappearance, Mountain Brook had a population of about 22,000 people, and while living in Mountain Brook, Beth was able to get a job working at an elementary school as a speech pathologist. Now, when Natalie moved to Mountain Brook, she was entering the eighth grade, and at this time of her life, one of her favorite things in the world was the movie, The Wizard of Oz. She had all the memorabilia she could find. She had posters in her room. She would save up in her little piggy bank to always be able to buy little trinkets and add to her collection. Something that Natalie also loved was dancing. This was a passion of hers from the time that she was just three years old. Now, Natalie is described as a child that any parent would be lucky to have. She was a straight A student in school. She was extremely respectful and responsible. She was kind to everyone. Her friends describe her as the type of student where academics came very naturally to her. Academics was something that she was just good at. Natalie spent her free periods working on different school projects while her other friends were chit-chatting or gossiping or just goofing off. She seemed to really embrace her schoolwork. It was something that was really important to her. Along with being incredibly smart, Natalie was also known to be incredibly funny. She was always the jokester. She could always make anyone laugh. She was always trying to entertain her friends or her family. She was always trying to keep the mood light and she was always known to just be that one that could make anyone laugh. Natalie also spent her time volunteering for Habitat for Humanity, the Humane Society, and Hope Lodge. Natalie was a very independent person, and she never relied on anyone for anything and was always capable of getting things done for herself. Some parents would need to remind their kids to wake up for school in the morning or finish their assignments on time, but that was never Natalie. In an excerpt from Beth Holloway's book, Loving Natalie, she said, quote, I used to joke with her saying, Natalie, just ask me some questions so I can feel like I'm your parent. Humor me. But she never needed my help with anything, end quote. Something that was also incredibly important to the Holloway family was their faith. They were devoted Christians, and every Sunday they would go to their service at the church, and Beth even went on to teach Sunday school for quite some time, so their faith was very, very important to them. Now, Natalie attended Mountain Brook High School, and like I mentioned earlier, one of her biggest passions was dance, so it was not a surprise to anyone when Natalie joined the dance team. But this was not the only thing that Natalie partook in. As you can probably tell by now, Natalie was an overachiever in the best way possible. She was a part of the student body government, she was a peer counselor, and she was also on the honor roll, being a member of the National Honors Society. Natalie graduated from Mountain Brook High School in 2005 and was accepted into the University of Alabama on a full-ride scholarship where she was planning on going in to the medical field. 
Now, Natalie was incredibly excited about being able to graduate high school. Like I said, this is 2005. She's thinking about graduation. She's thinking about her future. She's thinking about going to the University of Alabama and what that's going to entail for her. There were a lot of exciting things happening in Natalie's life. And another thing that was incredibly exciting for her and something that she was very much looking forward to was the graduating class trip that her and her classmates at Mountain Brook High School were going to attend. Every year, it had been a tradition for the graduating class of Mountain Brook High School to take a post-graduation celebration trip to Aruba. Now, Aruba is a beautiful tropical island that seemed to be the perfect place to celebrate this milestone. Like I mentioned, this was a Mountain Brook High School tradition, as for the past two years, large groups of students would go to Aruba after graduation. In the beginning of their senior year, there was a sign-up sheet where all the kids who wanted to attend would sign up and pay their portion of the trip, and that's how the school knew who was going. So this was a very big deal for Mountain Brook. This was something that all of the students looked forward to. In Natalie's graduating class alone, there were 124 students that were planning on taking this trip to Aruba. And like I said, everyone shared that same excitement surrounding it. Leading up to the trip, the school actually had a day where the seniors would dress up in tropical attire, Hawaiian shirts, they would call it Aruba Day. Now for Natalie's trip in particular, there were seven chaperones on the trip. So there were 124 students and seven chaperones. And these chaperones were pretty much only in attendance to make sure that nothing went wrong. They weren't there to babysit. They weren't there to follow the students around because at the time that they were going to be going on the trip, the majority of them were going to be 18 years old. They were going to be legal adults. This was going to be their post-graduation celebration. So these chaperones were really kind of just there to do a little quick check-in every once in a while. But again, there were only seven of them looking after 120 24 students. Now, in February 2005, so just a couple months before the Aruba trip, Natalie called her dad, Dave, and asked him if he would pay for half the trip while Beth was going to be paying for the other half. She explained to Dave that she was going to be staying at the Holiday Inn Hotel in Aruba, which is located right on the beach. Now, a big reason that Aruba was so appealing, why all of these senior classes would go to Aruba after their graduation, was because the legal drinking age in Aruba is 18 years old. So you have all of these recently graduated high school kids going to a tropical island, being able to drink to their heart's content without a care in the world, without a worry in the world, no parental supervision. And that was a very appealing factor to a lot of these kids. It was their perfect place to party. Now, when Natalie first approached Dave about this trip to Aruba, he had a lot of reservations about the trip and quite simply did not want Natalie to go. In Dave's mind, this trip was just asking for trouble. You have 124 students, seven chaperones, unlimited alcohol. It just seemed like a recipe for disaster. However, after considering it for quite some time and having several conversations with Natalie, he finally agreed that he would get on board and pay 
for his half of the trip. Now, Beth, Natalie's mom, was also extremely excited for Natalie to be able to go on this trip. One thing that Beth and Dave were able to agree on was the fact that Natalie deserved to be rewarded for all of her hard work. Like I was just saying earlier, Natalie was so responsible, always on top of her studies, her academics. She was in the honor roll, and they really believed that she deserved to have this celebratory trip with her friends. She did what she was supposed to do. She took care of her responsibilities. So for Natalie to approach her parents and want to go on a trip like this, they really wanted to be able to accommodate her for that and allow her to celebrate this extremely exciting time in her life. Now, for Beth and Dave, there was some comfort in this trip, knowing that this wasn't the first time that Mountain Brook students had taken this trip before. Beth's stepson had actually taken this trip two years prior in 2003 with 150 of his classmates. So Beth was able to talk to her husband, George, and talk to his son, which would be her stepson, and really have a better understanding about what the trip entailed and how it worked, the safety precautions on the trip, and a lot with that, Beth and Dave really liked the fact that so many students were going. There was 124 classmates that were going, and they really liked this whole safety in numbers mindset. That really helped them as well, knowing it wasn't just a small group of people, you know, a group of Natalie and her friends or her closest friends. This was going to be pretty much almost half of her graduating class. So there was going to be a lot of people there, and they thought that safety in numbers was really going to help. Leading up to the trip, Beth and Natalie both attended multiple meetings in regards to the trip. There were meetings with just the students. There were meetings with just the parents. There were meetings with both. And Natalie and her mom attended each of those meetings, which also made them both feel a lot more comfortable. Now, in regards to Natalie's dating life, I do want to touch on this just briefly. Natalie, up until this point, had never had an official boyfriend. She did have many boys that were friends, and she had a great group of friends. She was incredibly social, but her and her mom were always very open with each other in regards to sex and her dating life. She really confided in her mom. They really were best friends. And according to Beth, leading up to that trip, Natalie did tell her that she was a virgin at the time that she was going to Aruba. And it was during this conversation that Beth made it a point to tell her daughter that Natalie needed to be aware while on her trip to Aruba because there were probably going to be men there that would try and target her or take advantage of her, try and get her drunk. And Natalie would hear her mom out during these conversations and promised her mom that she was going to be careful. She reassured her mom that she was going to be with her friends the entirety of the trip. And Beth really trusted Natalie in that way. It was not like Natalie to leave her friend group. There was always a running joke between Beth and Natalie that Natalie and her friends were always running in a pack together. They never left each other's side. So Beth felt very comfortable about that in regards to this trip. Now, with all of this being said, all of this preparation for the trip, all of the conversations about the trip, Natalie was incredibly excited, as you can imagine, about this trip to Aruba. Not because of the actual trip itself, which she was very excited about that too, but more so what the trip signified in her life. Natalie really saw this trip as the start of this new chapter, the start of her future, and it was all very 
very exciting to her. She had big plans for her future and she felt like this was the kickoff to all of that. So Natalie's senior graduation happened in May of 2005. This is when she graduates Mountain Brook High School and is ranked number 25 in her class of 300 students. Natalie graduated with a 4.17 GPA. She received three honors cords for graduation. One of them was for the National Honor Society. One of them was for the Math Honor Society. And one was for the Spanish Honor Society. Both of Natalie's parents, as well as her family, attended her graduation to support her and cheer her on, and everyone in Natalie's life describes this as a really exciting day. It was a happy day for everyone. But once graduation was over, now it was really time to focus on this Aruba trip. So the itinerary for this Aruba trip was that everyone was going to arrive in Aruba on Thursday, May 26th, and they would be leaving four days later on May 30th. So the 26th rolls around and Beth drops Natalie off at a friend's house, which was the meeting spot for Natalie and her friends before they all got into the car together and drove off to the airport. Later on that day, on the 26th, the classmates arrived in Aruba, and when they arrived at the hotel, the chaperones gathered around all the kids in the hotel lobby to have a group meeting to go over everything itinerary wise to go over roommates and room numbers and this really was the last time that everyone met together and the chaperones were able to sit all of the kids down in one place before pretty much letting them go off and do what they wanted to do with their days they went over safety procedures and they encouraged the buddy system they gave room numbers like i said they gave their roommates and then they were on their way. Now, like I mentioned in the beginning, and I don't think it will be a surprise to anyone, this trip to Aruba was definitely a celebratory trip, and it is exactly what you can imagine when you think of a bunch of 18-year-olds who go to an island without any parental supervision. There was a lot of drinking, there was a lot of partying, there was a lot of gambling, and apparently, Natalie's senior class was so disruptive that the Holiday Inn told them that they were not allowed to come back the following day year. Most classmates looked back on this trip and agreed that the drinking was definitely what they called quote-unquote kind of excessive. It was said that Natalie herself did not show up to breakfast on two of the days because of the excess drinking that she did the night prior, which all of her friends say was very much not like her. And all in all, Natalie's friends remembered this trip and Natalie specifically as having the time of her life. Up until that very last day, Natalie was having fun with her friends. She was sitting by the pool. She was enjoying the ambiance, the experience that she was having. She truly was living life to the fullest. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. 
So now I want to kind of fast forward and work our way backwards a little bit because I think that that is the way that it's going to make the most sense. So now I want to fast forward to May 30th, 2005, which was the day that everyone was leaving Aruba. Now on May 30th, all of the classmates were told to meet in the hotel lobby between 7 and 8 a.m. to get a head count and get ready to head to the airport and start their journey back to Alabama. So while everyone was gathering in the lobby, this is when one of Natalie's friends went up to a chaperone and told them that Natalie had never made it home from the night prior. Her friends explained that them and Natalie had gone out to the bars the night prior and Natalie had not gone home with their group. Now, at that point, the chaperones and some of Natalie's friends went up to the room that Natalie was staying in at the hotel to see if her stuff was still there, which it was, including her cell phone. Now, at this point, the chaperones quickly went to the front desk to let management know what was going on in hopes that they could contact the police, but management was very unhelpful to say the least. Now, these chaperones wanted to act quickly because they didn't know what they were dealing with here. All they knew is that one of the students was nowhere to be found, but management told them that there was nothing that could be done until Natalie was officially missing for 24 hours. Now, in the very beginning of this investigation, so on May 30th, when all of this was happening, there was very little known about what happened to Natalie the night prior, but luckily her friends were able to fill in some of those blanks. So according to her friends, on May 29th, which was the last night of the trip, the plan was to go to a local bar called Carlos and Charlie's. This is a very well-known local bar in Aruba and one of the bars that the students went to every night. So they became very familiar with it during their stay. Now, before going to Carlos and Charlie's, Natalie and her friends had dinner by the hotel pool as they did every night and then went to the hotel casino. And it was at the hotel casino that Natalie met a man named Joran Vandersloot. Now at the time, very, very little was known about Joran. All Natalie's classmates knew was what she had told them about him, which was that he was a 19-year-old tourist who was staying at the Holiday Inn. Now, what we know about Joran Vandersloot now is that he was not 19 years old. However, at the time, he was 17 years old and living in Aruba. Joran Vandersloot was born in the city of Arnhem, which is in the eastern part of the Netherlands. He was born to his parents, Paulus and Anita, and in 1990, Joran and his parents moved to Aruba, where he was an honors student at the International School of Aruba. Joran was also a star football and tennis athlete at the school, competing in many competitions and had aspirations to continue to play tennis in college. Now, Joran's father, Paulus, was actually a lawyer and training to be a judge at the time of Natalie's disappearance, so he definitely had some ties into the legal system. Keep that in mind. Now, from the people that knew the Vandersloot family, they said it was very common that when Anita went out of town, which she did quite frequently, Joran and Paulus would party like 
bachelors. They would go gambling. They would go clubbing. It was said that Yorin actually had a $50,000 line of gambling credit at the Holiday Inn Casino, which was the hotel that Natalie was staying at. Yorin Vandersloot came from a very well-off family and was not used to having many rules in his life. Now, we are going to jump in more as to what exactly happened the night of May 29th in the early morning hours of May 30th. But before we do so, I want to fast forward again back to May 30th. So after not being able to find Natalie, the chaperones immediately called Natalie's mom, Beth, to let her know of the status of the situation. And without second thought, Beth was already on a flight to Aruba. Now, while Beth was on the flight, Beth had her brother called Dave and let him know of the situation as well and what was going on. And Dave booked a flight for Aruba the very next day. Now, while Beth was on her way to Aruba, she was given slight information from Natalie's friends, which was the basics of what I just told you. Natalie and her friends went to dinner, then gambling, then to the bar. However, again, she did not go home with her friends that night. Her friends also introduced Beth to the name Joran Vandersloot. However, again, she wasn't given a lot more information than that. Now, according to Dave, Natalie's father, when him and Beth got to Aruba and met with police, one of the first things that police told him was not to worry because Natalie was surely going to show up in a few days. Police said that things like this happen quite frequently in Aruba and that they they're confident she'll just show back up in a few days. She probably partied too hard. But from the very beginning, Natalie's parents knew that something was very, very wrong. Like I mentioned in the very beginning, Natalie was described by everyone that she knew as being a very responsible, organized, and meticulous person. She was always punctual. She was never late. She would not have done something like this voluntarily. It just wasn't like her. Now, in terms of the rest of Natalie's classmates and Natalie's friends, they all did end up going back home to Mountain Brook that day on May 30th. And when they got there, they worked very closely with the Holloway family as well as the Aruban authorities to try and get an understanding of exactly what happened that night. So let's now dive in to exactly what Natalie's friends claimed happened that night. Now, again, on the night of May 30th, they described this day as very, very normal. There was nothing out of the ordinary. Natalie and her friends were simply enjoying their last night of vacation together. Again, they explained that Natalie and her friends went to dinner and then gambling, and that is where Natalie met Joran Vandersloot. Her friends claimed that when Natalie met Joran and the two were gambling at the casino, Joran seemed very creepy. That is the word that they used to describe him. It was clear to Natalie's friends that while she was gambling, she just was having conversation with Joran, not because she was interested in him, but just because he kept talking to her. She was just kind of responding to whatever he was saying. But again, Natalie told her friends that she was not interested interested. Now, as the night went on and more alcohol got involved, things definitely began to change. Natalie's friends claim that when they left the casino at the Holiday Inn and went to Carlos and Charlie's, Yorin and two of his friends showed up shortly after. 
What we now know is that these two friends were 21-year-old Deepak Kalpo and 18-year-old Satish Kalpo, who were brothers. It was said that at the end of the night, at approximately 1.30 a.m., Natalie and her friends were leaving the bar. However, instead of Natalie going back to the hotel, she got into a silver Honda car with Yorin and the Kalpo brothers. Now, Natalie's friends remember telling her to get out of the car, but Natalie did not listen and said that she would meet them back at the hotel later. Now, it was clear that Natalie was intoxicated, as they all were, but that is when the car drove off. Now, Natalie's friends described the end of the night and trying to get into different cars and cabs and Natalie leaving. It was all very chaotic because Carlos and Charlie's had closed earlier than anyone had anticipated it to because it was a Sunday. So they closed earlier than their normal weekend hours. And so because of that, everyone was kind of scrambling, trying to get cars and cabs. And they were really just more so focused on getting back to the hotel. And they thought that Natalie would meet them there. Some of Natalie's friends even claimed that they thought that Natalie did get into a cab. They didn't know that it was actually Yorin and his friend's car that she was getting into. So that's kind of how chaotic and scattered everything was, just to give you a better understanding of the setting that they were in. And again, all of Natalie's friends were pretty intoxicated, so they weren't thinking that something bad could happen to Natalie. This might sound naive, but a lot of Natalie's friends have said that growing up in Mountain Brook, it really was kind of a bubble that they were living in. There was never any danger. They didn't have to worry about their safety, you know, and so any sort of danger really was foreign to them and they weren't even thinking that something like that could happen because they did live in this bubble back at home where they didn't have to think like that. Now, when this investigation started, the detectives had spoken with some of the bartenders at Carlos and Charlie's and learned that Yorin was a regular at this bar. And not only that, he was very much considered a hot commodity when it came to women. The officials also learned that Yorin had often paid different bartenders to slip date rape drugs into drinks that they would make. So not only are officials and Natalie's parents learning that Yorin was the last person to be seen with Natalie, however, they're also learning that Yorin definitely wasn't holding up the best reputation. He wasn't known to be this great guy, clearly. Now, when Beth initially arrived to the Holiday Inn on May 30th, she walked straight up to the front desk and asked the manager if she knew a man by the name of Joran Vandersloot. Now, you might think that this is a long shot and why would she even ask something like this? But from the very beginning, Beth was reassured by officials in Aruba that everyone knows everyone and that they would find Natalie. So that is why she took it upon herself to ask. 
Now, sure enough, the manager claimed that she did know who Joran Vandersloot was. She went on to describe him as someone who preyed upon young female tourists, especially blondes, and that he lived in Aruba. Now, up until this point, Beth was under the impression that Joran was this 19-year-old tourist who was staying at the hotel, and now she's learning that Joran, in fact, is a 17-year-old local. So this is the first real lie that she is learning about Joran. Now, when Beth was learning more about Joran Vandersloot, she actually decided that she was going to take it upon herself to go exactly to Joran's house, where he lived with his parents. So she was wasting no time. She gets there. She's, you know, hits the ground running. She's trying to find her daughter. And she decides that she's going to go straight to the source. She's going to go straight to the person who was last known to be seen with her daughter. And again, Aruba is a very small island and it was an everyone knows everyone type of island. So it didn't take long to figure out where Yorin lived. So Beth gets in the car with her husband, George, as well as the Aruban officials and together they all drive over to Yorin's home. Now when they get there, Beth stayed in the car while George and the officials walked up to the gate because there was a gate surrounding Yorin's family's property. Now after some time of standing around at the gate, Paulus Vandersloot, who again is Yorin's father, walked out and stood at the other side of the gate. After conversing with George and officials, Paulus told them that Yorin was not home at the time, and instead, he was out playing at a poker tournament at the Wyndham Hotel, which was on the island. Now, immediately, George got back into the car with Beth and relayed the information that he had just been told, and that is when they made the decision to race over to the Wyndham Hotel. Now, when they arrive to that hotel, Beth jumps out of the car, runs into the lobby, and goes straight straight to the casino, which is where Paulus claimed that he would be. However, he was nowhere to be found. Now, at this point, Beth is searching for Yorin through this casino. She is looking down hallways. She is turning around. She is trying to find him anywhere. But that is when she sees not Yorin, but Paulus. So Paulus has driven from his house to this casino and Yorin was nowhere to be found. Now, when she sees that Paulus had met her there at this casino, she notices that he's on the phone. And when she approaches him with George, that is when Paulus said that Yorin went back to the house. So this really is the beginning of the wild goose chase that is this case. Beth and Dave are just constantly led down different lies, different misinformation, and it is a constant throughout this case. So they see Paulus and Paulus says, oh, nope, he's back at the house. So again, they get back into the car and drove back over to Yorin's house for a second time. Now, when they arrive there, they see Deepak's silver Honda in the driveway, which is the same car that Natalie was last seen in. Now, once all parties arrive at Yorin's house, everyone is seemingly having like a little powwow 
in the front of this home. So you have Yorin, you have Paulus, you have the officials, and you have George. And Beth, again, was staying in the car on the phone with Natalie's friends. So during this little meeting that they're having, Yorin starts talking about what he knows in regards to Natalie's disappearance and what had happened the night prior. Yorin claimed that he met Natalie at the blackjack table at the Holiday Inn Casino and that her and her friends were talking about going to Carlos and Charlie's, where he met up with her later that night. He claimed that when he got there, Natalie was dancing with her friends and that he did a jello shot off of her stomach before buying her a shot of 151 proof rum. After the bar closed, Yorin claimed that Natalie wanted to go with him. So that is when they got in the car with the Calpo brothers who were there as well. Now, before finishing his story or even continuing on with his story, Yorin asked the group that was all standing around if there was anyone there who was related to Natalie. And that is when George, so Natalie's stepfather, identified himself and Yorin asked him to walk away so he could finish telling the story which he agreed to do. Now, when George walks away, Yorin continues and goes on to say that while he was in the back seat of the car with Natalie, she told him that she wanted to go see sharks. So that's what Yorin says. She wants to go see the sharks. And Yorin apparently tells her that there are no sharks in Aruba, but she insisted. She insisted on going to the beach and seeing the shark. So that is when he and the Calpo brothers took her to the lighthouse, which is on the beach at the end of the island. And the two of them made out in the backseat of the car on the way there. They drove around the lighthouse. And after driving around for some time, Yorin said that he made the executive decision that Natalie was too intoxicated and that she needed to be brought back to the hotel, which they did. So he claims they're driving around. He realizes that Natalie is too drunk and he decides let's drop her back off at the Holiday Inn. So he claims that him, the Calpo brothers and Natalie all drove back to the Holiday Inn and dropped her off there. And then Yorin and the Calpo brothers went home. So that is this initial story that Yorin is stating. Now, it was during this conversation that Yorin made several comments about Natalie and her physical appearance, her body more specifically, and this made Beth realize, because they weren't far enough away to not be able to hear what Yorin was saying, this made her realize that Yorin was at least telling the truth about the fact that he was with Natalie, which to Beth was a terrifying realization. And before Yorin could be answering any more questions that were about to be thrown at him, Paulus told Yorin to stop talking and not to say anything else. All right, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in to part one of this episode. Make sure you tune in next week for the second and final part, and I will see you there.